Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Today, we're going to be talking about an interesting topic regarding life insurance, and that is why our top banks using so much life insurance? Why are they holding billions of dollars in life insurance? Now, the question should hopefully make you think, because there are so many people telling you cash value life insurance, that's a poor idea. You shouldn't be putting your money in. Let's, instead of listening to opinion, let's instead look at those institutions that are the most financially stable and follow what are they doing? There's got to be some secret reason behind this. So today we're going to unpack that. We're going to look at some of the financials behind what is making what are making banks so strong? Why are they making a decision to put billions of dollars into cash value life insurance? Bruce, what is so fascinating about this topic that makes us want to address it today? So, you know, there's reasons there's reasons to do anything in your financial life. Um, you know, whether it's getting yourself um, understanding where your money's flowing, whether it's um, uh, doing debt consolidation, whether it's doing the proper insurance on your home, whether it's uh, doing proper cash flowing investments. There's all kinds of reasons that you're trying to sift through every day You know what you should be doing with your money. And um, I always tell a person, you know, you really ought to go and see what the experts are doing. And then you have to figure out who are the true experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to say, just like we've always encouraged all our listeners is, why is anybody saying what they're saying? And this is, this is I want to pre-frame the, the conversation today because, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and I'm going to continue to learn Um, exactly what that means throughout my life, because it's just my personality. So I look at the entire industry, um, financial services industry, and then subsets of the industry, especially at the insurance aspect, because that's what we talk about on this particular program. That's not the only thing we can talk about or, or have competency in, but the only thing that the SEC allows us to talk about on this particular, and FINRA actually allows us to talk about on this podcast. And so I watch, I watch what other people are doing. I listen to other podcasts from insurance professionals. I listen to the people that talk about IULs. I take listen to people that talk about VULs. I talk about people that listen to people that say insurance is not a good thing to be doing. I listen, but I mostly listen to people that are into the whole life and the infinite banking concept because I want to learn from them. But I also want to be an industry leader as being a infinite banking practitioner, certified practitioner, and a personal mentor. And, and I would consider a friend of Nelson Nash mm-hmm. that I want to keep his legacy going. And social media has really helped this, but it's also hurt this. And it's hurt it in a variety of ways. And, and it's hurt it just like we all feel, I think that social media has distilled everything down to just a few seconds. 
And so people are saying things on social media about the infinite banking concept that just aren't true. And then what ends up happening is people claim they don't have enough time to really look into something so that they then just go with it and then they end up regretting it. So Rachel, we're going to break this down today as another educational piece that you and I continue to want to do education. And if a person doesn't want to get the education, I think they actually deserve whatever they get from these little sound bites. And we're getting more and more people reaching out to the money advantage and saying, I had a horrible experience with this other person. And I'm not trying to blow our horn that we do it right every time because we obviously don't. I mean, we everybody has failings, but there's too many people out there that are espousing this as a product rather than a process. And there's too many people out there that are simply saying there's only one way of doing this. And they're not trying to get the person's uh, entire goals and aspirations and then marrying it with the concept with Nelson Nash being the leader of this particular concept. Bruce, I want to. Sure. Before you move off of that idea, you finish your thought. I just wanted to bring a few things out from. No, what I'm you just gonna, I was going to go to Bowley now. Okay, so before we get into Bowley, what I think is really interesting, I love that you brought up the social media idea. I think we've been on a trajectory socially for a long time that we want more things faster. We, I mean, it used yeah. to be called the microwave effect or the microwave generation. We want everything as fast as possible. And I hear people doing this in every area of their life. You know, if I can't cook a dinner in 20 minutes, what's the point? Well, maybe you could actually find enjoyment in the process of cooking and chopping and, and use that almost as a, a meditative experience that exactly. you're, you're feeling, you're immersing yourself into the experience of cooking. Well, that's not the same thing as just get it done as fast as you can. Also, when we look at social media, you mentioned, um, you know, what is front and center that people see these little sound bites. The problem is, it can be really easy to read a headline somewhere and think you know everything about what that person is saying or draw a conclusion based on a headline and then move on to the next thing. And you're filling your mind with headlines rather than really digging down deep into understanding something. And Bruce, this is what you're saying. You're saying, well, if all you're reading is the, the sound bites or all you're seeing is the headlines, you're seeing the teaser, but you're not really digging into what that means. And you're not walking out a relationship with someone. You're just guessing based on all of these opinions of people and all of the the headlines that are designed to capture your attention, well, you're not going to fully be able to make healthy decisions. And so what happens is you'll, if you're just scrolling across YouTube, you're not actually diving into the the topics or into the content of people who are delivering the information. You're just scrolling across YouTube or TikTok or Instagram and you're seeing these small pieces, these segments and then you're forming opinions and basing your decisions on that. And the challenge is you really need to be able to find somebody who can help you understand the fundamentals and not just the, the marketing headline. Keep in mind, marketing headlines are not teaching. That is just to attract your attention. It's just to make you think differently, but it's not giving you answers. So look for answers, not just, um, not just hooks. One other thing I wanted to say, you mentioned the difference between product and process. And this came up in a coaching appointment that I had with one of my coaches last night. This idea that often when you're getting started with something, it can be really helpful to have the tactic 
or the exact step-by-step blueprint to follow where you're going line by line by line and you're, you're following exactly a recipe from someone else. But what the goal is, is not just to become stuck within those confines and say, well, I just do it exactly this one way that somebody specifically said. Instead, really the goal is to understand the point of it all. And that's deeper at the process and strategy level. That's deeper at the principle level. And when you understand and you seek for that understanding, then you're not so rigid and inflexible in terms of saying, it's only one way. I have to do it exactly like this. Instead, you're able to dance with that information and have this be something that's fluid in your life that helps you to do things better. And it's not rigid and confining and restrictive. Instead, it's freeing. So I just want to point that out as the reason we're talking about BOLI, which is stands for Bank Owned Life Insurance. It is a thing. You can look it up. You can look up BOLI yourself even outside of this podcast and what we're sharing today. That is a concept that has a reason. So we're not just looking at what banks are doing. That's the tactical level up here. And we're going to certainly talk about that. But the real question you want to be asking is, why are they doing this? What is it affording them? What is it allowing them to do? How is it positioning them differently? How is it helping them weather economic storms? How is it helping them to be the strong financial institution that they need to be to be a bank to earn people's trust to be able to hold people's capital? So we're digging deeper to that principle level. Bruce, I'll let you dig into the topic here. Yeah. So just to bring in a little content uh, to this, banks really did not own life insurance until uh, 1994. And I really, from my research, cannot find exactly why there was a big turn at that time. Um, I suspect it it came down from regulations because there was a lot of uh, regulations um, on banks. And a lot of people think it's bad that banks got deregulated. And so I, I suspect it came down to regulations. There was a big deregulation of banks in 1999. So I know then probably going up to that push, there was probably they were deregulating up to that in smaller increments. And so, but then in 1994, specifically uh, March of 1994, from my research, um, banks started to own large chunks of life insurance, not just, and this is really interesting from my research. I always knew they took it out on their employees. And they, and they did it on what's called institutional pricing. And institutional pricing simply means that um, you're not looking at it uh, in an individual level. You're looking at it more on a group level. And so, and then you're getting better, you're getting better rates because you're doing it over a larger uh, population. But they also then were taking out these types of institutional pricing and group on the people that were taking loans out on the bank so that they would have additional collateral. And that is that was, that became very interesting to me that they said they're going to protect, they're going to protect their assets by if somebody takes a loan out on the bank from the bank. So let's just use an example. Let's say somebody takes $500,000 out on the bank. They don't, they, if they don't live and they don't have an asset that backs the bank or backs the bank totally, then the bank is saying, what we're going to do is take these group policies out on all these people that are taking loans. They don't even know 
the people who are doing don't even know that they have this. And then if they would happen to die, the loan would be paid off by the death benefit. Mm. So this, this is something that banks are very good at taking care of their money. Anybody that's ever dealt with banks, they would know that they're, they want to be over collateralized. And so the first point is, if that is something that this institution is doing, why shouldn't you be doing it in your own life? Um, you know, when I look on social media, also, you often see a lot of GoFundMe pages for early deaths mm-hmm. because people didn't have any life insurance. And so to me, that would say say that, well, if if you are not treating yourself as an institution that's smart about their money, then you're going to have to basically go into bankruptcy. So banks are saying, we don't want to go into bankruptcy. We want to protect ourselves in case anything happens. So that's, that's, a just, that's a simple like, minimizing uh, risk situation. Correct. I mean, the bank is literally saying, we don't want a risk on this loan. Yeah, the the person is credit worthy who's taking the loan. Obviously, we underwrote their loan and their ability to repay, and we think they're likely to repay. We think that's a, a good use of our capital to make this loan to the person. But yes, there is that risk of what happens if they die. What happens if you have somebody with a very large loan, then that capital is not going to come back to you. So that's just a simple um, estimation then of saying, I value paying the principal. The bank is saying, I value paying the pr- the the principal I've, or the um, the premium. I value paying the premium of this life insurance policy for the sake of having the death benefit available to be able to compensate me for that particular loss. They say, that's worth it to me. And I love, Bruce, that you said, we need to see ourselves as an institution. I think all too often there are great principles that we put to use in our fin- or in our business. Usually it's in business, it's in any um, organization that we're running. I mean, if you're part of a 4-H club or you're you're running anything that is a, um, a volunteer organization, you're probably thinking more in terms of a strategy and you're putting these things in place to make that run smoothly. But you need to think about your own family, your own person, your own self in that way. So awesome, awesome, fant- yeah. fantastic plan. So let's just talk about a little bit, some other factors that are involved. So uh, banks have to have what's called tier one capital to be to be solvent by the regulators. And up to 25% of their tier one capital, which has to be like safe capital, up to 25% of their capital is saved in the cash values of, of permanent life insurance. And that then is used to also insure the employees of the bank. And it's also um, not only used, used to insure the employees of the bank, but it's also used when they, they do retirement plans for some of the highly compensated people of the, retire- of the bank. So they kind of can kill several birds with one stone. They can get their tier one capital, they can protect themselves as key person insurance of the bank, and they can have an employee benefit of deferred comp for the highly compensated employees, which um, 
they can do, which they cannot do with 401ks, because you cannot, according to the ERISA guidelines of 1973, you cannot actually uh, discriminate with retirement plans. Well, because these are non-qualified retirement uh, plans, you can only do it with, you cannot um, discriminate with qualified retirement plans such as 401ks, 403b, SEP, IRA, so on and so forth. They're allowed to do this. And that that keeps their highly compensated people around. So they they use it as a multiple way, just like we say in your own private life, you should be able to do it. In multi, or the cash value life insurance is good for you in multiple ways. So let's talk about a, a few things. Um, Actually, Bruce, really quick. Come from. So before we do that, we first were talking about the bank values life insurance period, meaning I'm willing to pay premiums for the potential of getting paid out of death benefit. Now, when we add in these other benefits, we're looking at the value of cash value as well, not just a death benefit, because if you're going to protect against a, a key person leaving your company, you don't want only a death benefit to pay out. You also want a cash value to be available. If you're going to have something that is considered golden handcuffs or as an executive bonus plan, you want the executive then to have access to something to be able to use during their lifetime. And that is going to be cash value. So we're now looking at banks value, the life insurance chassis, the life insurance structure in general, but they also don't just value having a death benefit. They also value having cash value as a piece of that, because that's where they're putting the the tier one capital is not just talking about the death benefit being the asset they're holding. It's the cash value. Yeah. And Rachel, actually, AJ uh, asked a question and I just want to tell AJ, we'll get to the, get to that hopefully towards the end. And thank you for asking that because that's been coming up a lot lately. And that's, and I don't know, AJ, if you were uh, on the podcast at the very beginning, but this has been coming up in social media. And I don't think insurance professionals quite understand this premium should equal income. And I will get to that hopefully by the end of the podcast. But let me get through what we're going to talk about today with, with the bowling. And, and thanks for all the listeners. Um, we, I know we have a lot of industry professionals that listen also. And just to let you know that I listen to your podcast and your your stuff too. So thank you for listening. So a couple of places that you can find out information on this is the actually the FDIC website. Okay, so you can go there and just put bank owned life insurance FDIC. You can look up banking usbanklocations.com. And just to let you guys know, if you're if you're watching on YouTube, this right here are the amount of banks using bank-owned life insurance. It comes out to uh, 3,214 banks. That's that's just the individual bank LLC, not all the locations across the United States. That's not the branch. That's the bank name. That's just the bank. Okay, so this, if you can see this, this is probably close to a half an inch of ream of paper. So let's just, and then the final thing is a, a really good resource um, is Laura, the Laura Murphy report, which is Carlos Laura and Bob Murphy, uh, Dr. Bob Murphy, who's, who everybody should know is an Austrian economist. And Carlos Laura is a workout specialist for businesses that, who have been on the board of the Nelson Nash Institute. And they, they put out a really nice publication called the Laura Murphy report. That's a free publication that you can sign up for. And, and they did in 2016, they have, they've talked about the why banks um, 
use this and that we've already talked about this, but one of the things that I think is very interesting from this Laura Murphy report is not only do they value the cash value, uh, Carlos uh, cites the Wall Street Journal, says banks of every size will receive the combined estimate of $400 billion in death benefits over the next two decades. So we're talking about the tier one capital being really good for them, the cash value. Everybody discounts the death benefit. When I, well, I shouldn't use absolutes. Many a lot people. Of, a lot of people discount the death benefit. And I understand that because I guess I probably discounted the death benefit. However, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, my first whole life of a policy that I took out of myself in 19, 87, when I was 24 years old, I took it out for the death benefit, $300,000 in 1987, because I wanted my wife to be protected in case something happened to my income. And she also took one out for $300,000 to protect for to protect me. So banks have the same kind of situation. That's where I got the 25% from um, from Carlos's research, and Carlos is an extensive researcher. The, the, I, we're not going to talk a lot about this because it's the same concept, but he also reported to note that hundreds of large employers, such as Walmart, Walt Disney, Dow Chemical, Procter & Gamble, just to name a few, list life insurance investment strategies, but instead of calling it BOLI, they call it COLI, corporately owned life insurance. So once again, I think we're going to we'll touch on this for the last time. There's a lot of people out there that say, oh, life insurance is a terrible place to put your money. And I, you're seeing some of the major corporations do this also. Now, let's, let's get into just a, a little bit about the numbers. So this was run on uh, June 30th of 2022. So very recently less than a quarter away. Bank of America, and just listen to what I say. These are all with Bs, okay? Not Ms. These are billions of dollars, not millions of dollars. Bank of America owns $24 billion of life insurance cash value assets. That's not the death benefit. That's the cash value. Wells Fargo, 19. J.P. Morgan, 12. PNC Bank, 10. Truist Bank, seven. I'm not going to read all these to you, but I am going to go down a little bit further because you heard of all those banks. Now we're going to, I'm going to go down to a bank called Webster Bank. Anybody heard of Webster Bank? They're out of New York. Webster Bank it can't be that big, although it's in New York. Most things are pretty big in New York. 24th highest at $1.2 billion. So. These banks are obviously putting a lot of their own capital in these cash values. And once again, I want you just to think about they're in the, in the, in the business of making money off of their money. So they want to capitalize. This is the other thing that's coming up. Nelson Nash, one of his first rules, don't be afraid to capitalize. So they're capitalizing. They're not just 
throwing their money out into the wind and saying, we got to get into investments right away. So don't be afraid to capitalize. So those are the facts that you can go look up for yourself. Uh, I'm sure Rachel will put these in the show notes. And Absolutely. then we, yes. we go on. So Rachel, if you want to uh, add any thoughts, and if not, then we can go to AJ's question. If anybody else has some questions today. Yes. So I do have some thoughts I want to share here, but please put in your questions. I think we're touching on some really big topics right now, some really big numbers and some very prominent organizations that are using whole life insurance, or I should say cash value life insurance. It may not necessarily always be whole life, but they are valuing the cash value component of life insurance. One thing I want to bring up is that when we did some research Back in um, an article in Medical Economics in 2009, there was some data that was saying over 62% of banks hold BOLI, which is bank-owned life insurance, and that BOLI makes up an average of 13 to 19% of tier one capital assets. Bruce, you're saying 25% now, so that's possible that that's changed a little bit over that time. What was very, very interesting is that from 2008 to 2009, in the midst of the biggest economic crisis that we've seen in our recent history, I won't say the biggest in history, but the biggest in recent history, they were increasing their holdings in life insurance, not decreasing. So that is a very interesting fact to me because we always talk about modeling the successful few and watching what the successful are doing. That doesn't necessarily just mean successful individuals. That can mean successful organizations or entities or industries as a whole. And when we look at banking, if they're saying during times of crisis and challenge, we're increasing this asset to hold more cash value than before, that should tell us that they are using this as a predictor of financial strength and stability and that we can do the same in our own life. So I just wanted to zoom back from the the looking at the tactic. The tactic is let's use life insurance. What are they doing it for? What's the principle? They're saying, how do I have as much stability? How do I have as much capital that I can access, that I can tap into, that I can use, that I can have this asset, this tier one capital asset on my books for the purpose of stabilizing my financial life. We can do the same thing. Bruce, what was the um what was that thought that you had here? Well, <laughs> it's funny. You're you're talking about stabilizing and yet they don't they they use fractional reserve banking. <laughs> and, and but it does really stabilize it pretty good because insurance companies have to have more money than they actually have promised. So they're the opposite of fractional reserve banking. I just thought that was when you that said that. That is interesting. Yeah. Banks being able to use fractional reserve banking, which is unstabilizing to them, relying on a very stable industry, the life insurance, to bring more stability. Yeah. 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 So that's good. Um, do we want to close that out so we can answer yeah. a few questions? I think so. Okay, Unless so there's any questions that come up about Boley or Coley specifically, or why organizations and banks are doing this, please drop your questions in the chat if you're watching live. Um, let's go ahead over to AJ's question. Yeah. So AJ... This has been coming up a lot lately, and I think people are um, a little bit confused. And actually, Nelson brought this up in his book, and I don't remember the page. I know kind of where it is, um, but I can't remember the page right now, but it's, it's towards the back third of the book. And it's very, con- it's very confusing because Nelson actually talks about this, but it, you've got to read what he's saying. First of all, insurance companies, insurance companies in general want you to be s- successful. And with any product, 
our strategy you put in place. So the insurance companies, the mutual insurance companies that we work with, they actually will cap on their algorithms. They say, we only want you to put it in about 25 to 30% of your cash flow, your current cash flow. And that's kind of the only thing they would do. And then they have, they say it depends upon the death benefit, of course, because as one executive once told me, we do not create estates, we only protect estates. And that makes sense, right? You don't want a person to be worth more dead than alive. And that's another thing, by the way, people always say, you know, oh, I don't want to have too much life insurance on me because my spouse, I'm worth more dead than I am alive. Well, that's not true because insurance companies will never do that. Absolutely. Uh, and you're talking about death benefit right there, which means benefit, they won't right. put more death benefit on you than than Correct. your income supports. But see, when you try to put all your, the reason I, thanks for clarifying that. The reason I'm I'm telling that is if you were to put all your income if it was possible, and by the way, it is possible, but not the way people think, if you were to put all your income in there, the death benefit would be so high that it would more than protect your income. So you'd be worth more dead than alive. So that's the, that's the first hurdle. I'm, not, I'm still not saying you can't do this. So just hang in there. The second hurdle is that because they want you to be successful <clears throat> and they don't know you as an individual. Remember, insurance companies are actuarial products. So they don't really look at you as your own habits and your own personal integrity. They can't do that. They can't, they, they're just looking at you as a, a number. I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that, but that's the way it is. So we don't, don't see people as numbers, but we're the middle right. person between the insurance right. company. The insurance company is looking, when will you die? How much money do you make? I mean, really, that really ultimately is what it boils down to. They're assessing yeah, those health, things. Yeah, your health or excuse me, your age, your gender, and your habits. That's what they're looking at. But but habits don't include your integrity. Yes. No, your character. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do this. So they're always worried if you if we're going to underwrite you for $200,000 a year because that's your income. What happens if something happens where your cash flow changes? You lose you lose your job, so on and so forth, and then you can't pay it. And then you you either uh, greatly have to reduce pay up, or you surrender the policy. And then you say, "See, this was a terrible strategy. It was a terrible product." They they don't want that. They'd rather not have the premium. And I know this is hard to believe for people, but this is the business decision. They'd rather not have the premium that have that bad thing because uh, insurance companies are conservative. Now, how can you get, how can you get all your income through? You can do it indirectly. Okay, the, the, they have multipliers. Like at 30, you can put 40 times your, in, your income. At 35, you can put, you know, um, 38 times. At you 30, mean death benefit. Death the death benefit, benefit is okay. the multiplier yes. of your income. Okay. Thank you. Uh, of the multiplier. So the one way, or your net worth. So they'll always insure you up to your net worth. So if you can build your net worth high enough that your income death benefit is less than your net worth, you can do it indirectly. They still want to see 25 or 30, but you can reposition assets to make up the difference. 
So in other words, it's, let's say you're making 200,000, 25% of that is 50,000, but then you're going to tell them, I'm going to take another 150,000 out of my bank account, or I'm going to take it out of uh, another asset such as a uh, brokerage account, so on and so forth, and make it up. So then you just take your rest of your income and then replenish your brokerage account, your money market account. So you're indirectly doing it. So there is a way to do that, but you have to get your net worth high enough that you can actually be a, um, have the insurance company insure your net worth. And if you read Nelson's book, he explains that. But people, but people haven't read it. They just basically say, oh, I heard Nelson said to run all your income through it. And once again, this is these little sound bites, Rachel, that mm -hmm. people, so AJ, I hope that was um, a good enough example. I think you ought to, people ought to strive to do that at one. I haven't, I haven't checked. I haven't checked my cash flow in a while, but at one time I was getting really close to that. And um, it's really satisfying when you have these, when you have these uh, really seasoned old policies so that when you put money in, you know, 30 days later, you have 150% or 50% growth of what the money went in. So meaning so if you put in $50,000 into premium 30 days later, you're saying 75,000 more is available in cash value, right? Yes. Yes. Which and, is and amazing. So, yeah. It's really good. Now I can't promise you that I got a lot of old policies. So I can't. Ours are not that old yet. I think our oldest one is ten, going on ten years. So we're yeah. not seeing that kind yet. But it is fantastic to see getting getting closer and closer to that. Yeah, and so and the, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that to bed right now. But thanks, AJ. I know you've been a long time listener, and we really appreciate your question. Um, the next one is by C. Holman, and this one comes up all the time. And this is a talking point again on the against whole life. And it just, it really, it really, I shouldn't say upsets me. It disappoints me that people make this claim and they don't understand what they're saying. And here's so the Bruce, claim. Yeah. I don't see the question. So can you just go yeah, ahead and share it that way? Everyone can, yeah, can yeah. understand. Yeah. And the, and the claim is it's not it's not, it doesn't make any sense or it's a scam because I have my cash value. And when I die, my family only receives the death benefit mm -hmm. and the life insurance company keeps the cash value. Yes, it's hundred percent true. And the reason it's true and the reason you should be okay with it is because the insurance company only charges you the, the risk that they have for the death benefit. So what is the risk? If you have a $2 million death benefit and $1 million of cash value, the insurance company is not charging you for $2 million of coverage. They're only charging you the difference between the $1 million of cash value and the $2 million of death benefit. So they're only really charging you the risk of $1 million between the two. So when a person says they're keeping it, no, they're not. They're actually paying out the entire $2 million, and they're only charging you their risk, which was $1 million. Our great friend and one I've already talked about, Dr. Bob Murphy, 
has given an example of this. When you sell your home, you got a $1 million home and you got $500,000 of equity in it and you sell it, you don't get the 500 or the $1 million and the $500,000 of equity. Mm-hmm. You don't get both of those. We don't, nobody ever says, oh, that's a scam. I sold my home and I had $500,000 of equity. Why don't I get that and the million dollar sale? If anybody's ever worked with me, I often use this as an analogy to even show that whole life insurance is like an asset, just like a home's an asset. So I'm going to stop beating this horse, but I'm going to I'm going to reemphasize one thing once again. The reason the insurance company doesn't give you your cash value is because they're not charging you for the full two million dollars of death benefit. They're only charging you for the difference. And the next year, in the next year, when the one million dollars of cash value goes to one point one million, they only charge you for nine hundred thousand. The next year, when it goes to one point two million, they only charge you for eight hundred thousand. This is an endowed contract. And so, guess what? When you get to age one twenty-one, and the death benefit equals the cash value, congratulations! Now you get the cash value. So, so just think about that. It's about how much they're charging you for the risk. I want to be clear that your premium is not going down each year. The amount of your premium that's being applied to the cost of the insurance is less Correct. and less. Correct. And that brings up another thing, Rachel, the same person that talks about this also talks about you should buy term and invest the difference. Well, that's what that's what whole life insurance companies do. The rates that they're charging you for the insurance are term rate, rates. And then they take the cash value and they invest it into other things for you. And then they give you a dividend for that. It's the same thing. It's just that we should say that their investment actually means you could lose money. And cash value, you cannot lose money. You might not get the full dividend, but you can't, it cannot go backwards. So it's a, it's, a, it's the same premise. You're just allowing the insurance company to do that investing the difference for you on your behalf. And they're getting the benefit of their, I mean, their behemoth institutional investing capabilities and their much better judgment than usually an individual has and their longer range view, and their more conservative approach. So you're just getting a lot more benefit of their investment strategy rather than relying on your own. Exactly. So those are the two questions that came up today. I don't know if anybody else has any questions. We do have quite a few people on the channel today, and we appreciate it. Absolutely. If you're new here, let me just go ahead and do this real quick. If you're new to the Money Advantage, go ahead and give us a thumbs up on this video, go ahead and hit like and subscribe. We would love to be able to see you in the future as we bring up more content and answer more questions about life insurance specifically, your financial life in general, and really being able to make the best soundest or most sound financial decisions. I would love to also invite you to go over and check out themoneyadvantage.com. We have more tools and resources for you there, as well as the whole listing of all of the podcasts that we've done over the past nearly five years. 
We also would love to be able to answer your questions about your own individual life. If you have questions about how life insurance can work for you, how you can be like the bank, how you can be like these large corporations that are valuing this sound, stabilizing, securing strategy of having cash value life insurance in your own life. We'd love to to have that conversation with you. So go over to themoneyadvantage.com and check it out. Bruce, as we come to a close today, I really appreciate you bringing this topic up. Thank you for sharing that link. And I can share the link in the show notes once we publish those as well from um, the US bank locations. That list is tremendous and very eye-opening to realize the value of the amount of life insurance that banks are holding. So thank you for bringing those out today. If anyone has questions, we'd love to answer them after the fact as well. So you can also ask your questions in another way. If you're watching this video or listening to the podcast when it comes out in a completely different format and we're no longer live, today is September 14th. If you're watching this and it's 2023 or something like that, you can email us your question at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. You can also put a comment on the video if you're watching on YouTube or if you're on Facebook or if you're on LinkedIn or Twitter, go ahead and put your question in. We see those. We love your comments. We love your questions, your feedback. And we can either answer you right then and there, or sometimes we'll do a whole episode on your specific question. So we love to be able to have the content that we provide answer the most pressing questions and concerns that are on your mind. And we can find lots of things to talk about. We have a million things we can share, but it's even more valuable when we have your direct questions and the things that are pressing on your mind. I like I like our new uh, listener. He says, new to the channel, uh, C. Holman. And he's got a <laughs> humor because he said, how, how do I live to be 121? You know, um, this is this is off the subject here, although this is oftentimes uh, people people worry about some really interesting things. People worry about life insurance companies going under because too many people die. And then they also worry about people living too long and the life insurance company not being able to make their promises because the cash value actually grows too much, which that, that that's really sad to me because people don't understand how basic finance works. It's actually, it's actually good. The longer you have something invested. Uh, but <laughs> he says, how do I live the 121? Um, I don't know if it's um, male or female, but home, Mr. 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 Miss Holman, whoever it is. You know, there's been, I'm a, you might not know this because you haven't, I'm a biologist. I have a master's degree in biology and I'm really, I really believe in scientific technology. And there's some, been some great movement now on the understanding of DNA and how we can live longer. And some people say they don't want to live longer, but that's because they don't have the visionary that you're going to live longer, but you're going to live better. Because they they see old people and dementia and just keep living and living and living because mm-hmm. of that. Yes, who would want to live like that? Yeah. But I do think there's some really nice um, breakthroughs. And just like your whole life policy works better the longer, it just keeps compounding and then takes off exponentially. That's the same way that industry and technology works with information. So they build upon each other. So as cancer research continues to make great strides, one day it's all of a sudden, it's just going to take off exponentially and solve a lot of health problems. You know, and so, so that's I, how 
uh, Holman, you can live to 121. I'm going to share something on that as well. I'm going to give a plug to Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, we've had him on the show multiple times. We, My husband, Lucas, and I read a lot of his content and books and podcasts. And I don't even know if this idea specifically came from him, but there's, there's a, a secondary idea that I will share that does come from him. I will say, if you want to live a long time, if you talk to somebody who is assessing risk, they're going to tell you, don't do anything risky. Don't um, don't do anything, you know, dangerous. Don't go skydiving. Don't go rock climbing. Don't travel to any third world countries. Don't eat any food that might poison you. I mean, just really, really play it safe. Probably don't walk out your front door. Don't, uh, don't get hit by a bus. Like just don't do anything risky at all. If you talk to, um, somebody who's going to be more in the personal development space, they're going to tell you, take the risk. They're going to say, live your life to the fullest because it's usually the people who are most fulfilled, most contributing, most in love with life that have the healthiest, longest life. So there's different perspectives. And here's where it comes back to Rabbi Lappin. He would say, don't retire. And the reason I bring this up is that often people think I'm going to earn money. I'm going to retire, stop earning money. And I'm just going to focus on me. I'm just going to enjoy my life. I'm going to go be on vacation. I'm going to travel. Yeah. Lay on the beach, drink whatever you want to drink, lay in the sun, listen to music. And I'm just going to set step back from life and I'm not going to work anymore. The problem with that is so many fold, but one is you're no longer in relationship with people in a way that you're serving them where they're going to pay you. And you're not having that kind of dynamic where you're feeling useful. You're having to continue to increase your mental creative capacity to be able to serve better. And you're not providing value to others in a way that they're paying you for, which means you don't have that kind of obligation to humans anymore. Yes, maybe it's social obligations, but you have so much fulfillment that can happen when you have people who are relying on you to deliver a good or a service and you're increasing your mental capital by finding better ways to serve. So I would say the first thing, the first rule of living longer would be don't have retirement as your end goal. Yes, I agree. I think that's all for today. Uh, Well, we had a lot of um, engagement. Thank you all for being here today. This has been really exciting and we love your questions and feedback. Um, find us next time. We usually do these shows every week and you can also go over to themoneyadvantage.com, find everything that we have available on infinite banking. We have free resources. We have a course. And if you are looking for personal um, questions to be answered about your personal life to implement infinite banking or anything else in your financial life, we would love to help you with that. You can get a appointment on the calendar that is a free appointment by going to themoneyadvantage.com. Thank you so much. We'll be here next time. And in closing, please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.